Welcome to Shining Light Hunting Stories Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their great hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You're listening to episode 182. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, today is a good one and super excited to get into the interview that I recorded yesterday. Um, but before that, just want to say, you know, um, we're rolling. We've had a few episodes here in a row and just excited about that. Thanks uh, to the people that have left ratings and reviews lately. Thank you to anybody that's been sharing this. Also, thanks to my recent guests that have reached out to me. Uh, some of them have sent me an email at sheddinglightod at gmail.com or sent a private message, and we've lined up those shows. And so uh, that invitation is to you as well. If you have any hunting stories from this past deer season, maybe uh, I know some of you are starting to think about elk. If you're elk hunting this year, I'm a little jealous. I'm not, um, but, uh, you know, or upcoming turkey season, whatever it is. If you got a story, man, love to hear that, and uh, you can send us a message there. And uh, we'll, we'll get in contact. Um, you know, right now I've been kind of rolling through some turkey episodes. Um, we got a deer episode next week. But uh, last week I sat down with Josh and Trav and we kind of unpacked, if you didn't listen to that, uh, we talk all about like everything that we know about turkey hunting, which isn't a lot. I mean, I don't think, say any of us are experts or pros. Uh, Josh has been hunting longer than Trav and I. Trav and I have been at it since about 2014. Um, but in that episode, we just kind of cover a lot of different topics, get into tactics, mix in some of our personal stories, and it just turned out to be a really fun episode, I thought. Uh, I talked a lot about slapping turkeys, and you'll just have to listen to it if you haven't uh, to check that part out, but um, really cool. Today, however, uh, we have a guest on that I would say is an expert. This person has uh, definitely been hunting for a long time, hunts multiple states, and has a YouTube channel record <laughs> to kind of prove that they know a decent amount about turkey hunting. And what I love about this person is their willingness to share their information. Um, this is Shane Simpson. My buddy uh, Josh reached out to him. I told him about the podcast. Shane was more than willing to like come on and uh, give us some of his time, and I was really appreciative of that. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, go over and check out Shane Simpson Hunting on YouTube or check out that website, shamesensonhunting.com. And on that, what I love about Shane is his willingness to just kind of share his experience, the whole hunt, uh, multiple angles with cameras, does a great job with his camera work. Uh, he has some YouTube videos over a million views and just a down-to-earth guy that's just more than willing to kind of share what he's learned through his experiences. Now today, we don't get too deep into tactics, although we do cover some, but really we just get into some of Shane's favorite hunts. And what I love about a guy that's hunted so much is what he has, is he has a lot of hunts to pull from, and so we get to hear some of the best. And so it's a really fun one, and I think that you guys are going to enjoy it. So we're going to jump in. Uh, we're going to just get right into this episode. Fun one. Here is Shane Simpson. All right. Well, joining me from Minnesota is Shane Simpson. Shane, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, doing wonderful, man. It's a little chilly here in Ohio, but not not too bad. I hear you have some weather headed your way. Yeah, it's. Uh, I thought we were past the worst of it because that's usually in like mid to late January, and I was hoping that that was going to be the end of it and we'd have an early spring, but it looks like it's keeping its clutches on us. We're supposed to get like a blizzard conditions, 20 plus inches of snow and oh my goodness. 40, 50 mile per hour winds. So it's, it's, it's humorous. And I'll tell you why, because we have about a foot of snow on the ground already. And then it warmed up and rained and then it got cold and froze the snow solid. So it's like a, a half to a foot of just frozen snow. Oh boy. And they're putting new fiber optic lines in cable 
or for internet or whatever. And it goes right through my yard. They're putting it in through the neighborhood. They came out and put flags in our yard late winter or early or late fall, early winter before the snow hit. Yeah. A little flags spray painted the ground and then winter hit and the snow. So now they came out here and they climbed all over this frozen snow and they put more flags and more spray paint on top of the snow. And they're out here working now and we're supposed to get like 20 inches. And so now it's just going to bury all their work. They're, they're going to have three layers of flags and paint. And so when it thaws in the spring, we're going to have flags everywhere. That's awesome. That'll yeah. be, that'll be a sight to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on today. I'm just curious, you know, I know uh, you're a turkey hunter. Now you're a deer hunter too as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. What deer do you do? Is my prim, primary subject. Uh, yeah. What do you do during this time in between? I think this is a hard time for a lot of guys between deer season's over and just about every state. Turkey season's not quite here yet, even, even in the southern states. So what do you do in that in-between time? What do you fill your time with? There's not much free time. The, during deer season and turkey season is when I get the most free time and able to relax. Yeah. Because in the off season, so like deer season and a deer and track, I track with the dog also, so that actually ate up of a lot of my deer season. I didn't get to hunt much other than the early season. Mm. And once I stopped that and I purposely stop in mid to late November because it not only getting, it's getting cold, but I have so much other stuff to do. I started planning my Turkey trips. I have Turkey calls to make because I make my own mouth calls and it's just really busy. And plus I'm editing leftover spring Turkey videos from last year. Um, and, and trying to get those out. And so if no one knows my, the format of my YouTube show, <clears throat> it's kind of a near real time. So if I hunt this week, I try to have some videos from those hunts within a week. And so I do that through the spring until a certain part in the spring where, you know, people are losing interest in turkey hunting. Mm -hmm. It's the days are getting so long. It's hard for me to keep up with editing and stuff. And so I'll just stop editing and I'll just keep hunting and videoing. And I'll save those other ones left over until this time of year. So this time of year, getting ready for turkey season, making calls, editing leftover videos. And then on top of, it, uh, on top of that this year, I have some issues in my house. A, a leaky toilet turned into an entire bathroom restoration. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I'm trying to manage that as well. Yeah. And then when turkey season kicks off, it's so much stress, uh, less stress during that time. I mean, I'm editing and hunting, but it's more relaxing. And then, then during the summer, there's really no break then because I'm doing, you know, spring cleaning and other projects around the house. Last summer I was replacing a floor in the, the, the living room downstairs. And I'm also going out on trips to deer scout, getting ready for deer season. Mm -hmm. So when deer and then getting ready for tracking seasons, so it's year round, it's busy, but it seems to be the busiest in the off season. So there's no break for me during those times. Absolutely. And then you, you add in family life. <laughs> My yeah. daughter's big into volleyball. We go to a lot of tournaments and matches, run her to practice, other stuff. So it's just nonstop. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. So if anybody hasn't uh, heard of you before, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, Shane Simpson hunting <laughs> and your YouTube channel and just kind of your background? We'll get, get into like how you got started hunting a little bit later on, but just kind of give us a little bit about what you do and um, kind of bring us up to speed in case somebody hasn't. Yes, yeah, so currently the um, kind of the format of my show is I, uh, it's mainly turkey hunting, deer hunting, and tracking deer of my blue tick coonhound. And then I have a Boykin Spaniel that kind of flirts with tracking here and there. Um, so my I turkey hunt in the spring, I, I video it, <clears throat> and I try to 
set myself apart from the others where I, I try to capture so much of the hunt with multiple angles. I'm running three and four cameras when I'm set up on turkeys and try to a 360 camera action camera is my main camera. And I want people to get a, a good feel for what's going on. They see multiple angles. They see my surroundings and it's not just a camera pointing straight ahead and a turkey comes in. Um, on top of that, I try to edit it, edit the video uh, as soon as I can and get it up on my YouTube channel. So if I hunt today, hopefully by next uh, or this coming weekend, it would be on my channel if that was the case. And, and I'll put out one or two videos a week if, if things go smoothly. And then, um, and then during deer season, it's kind of the same thing, kind of a near real-time deal. I, I deer hunt, I use multiple cameras. I, I explain everything as I'm going into a situation. I, I explain getting from point A to B, like why I'm doing certain things. It's not just here I am in the stand and this is a creek bottom. You know, I try to yeah. explain. I want people to know why I'm doing the things I do. And then, and then I get into tracking with my dog in the, uh, after deer season or during deer season. I don't get to do much deer hunting once that starts. Um, and I record that too. I put uh, 3D um, maps or not maps, uh, 3D rendering of deer. I get it from the app Bow Hunt Simulator. And it shows like if a hunter calls me and tells me I hit a deer here, it was sit, standing at this angle at this distance. I hit it here and it ran off. And I show everyone on the on the videos the arrow going through it, the likely organs it hit, this the you know all the information the hunter gave me, and then we start Cali at the hit site or at last blood. I show overlays of maps showing the route that we track the deer up and down hills, you know, and and just kind of give people a feel for the the things we see as trackers when we're tracking deer. There's a lot of oddities out there, and then there's yeah. a lot of uh, just your standard find the deer, you know, straight to the deer deal. Um, yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. Super helpful. I, I, I appreciate that because it's, uh, I've been turkey hunting since uh, 2014, so I'm relatively new. And I just know going into it, it was, you watch videos and it's like, guy calls, turkey comes in, he kills it. And you're like, okay, well, <laughs> where were they? When did they call? How did they do the thing? So I, I appreciate your um, willingness to kind of share what you know and share the whole story so it's helpful people knowing how to set up and, and learn as they go. It's educational and entertaining. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, and this, there's always things I forget to, to include because um, the fault I have is I've been doing it so long and some of the stuff is second nature to me. I've learned from, you know, experience is the best way to learn sometimes mistakes I've made, but I don't always see that when I'm videoing and, or when I'm narrating a video or talking to the viewers why I did certain things. I miss those. And I'll get comments on my YouTube channel. Hey, Shannon, I noticed you did this in your hunt. Why did you do that? I'm like, oh, I should have mentioned that because that's not something, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, I try to improve on that. I take notes and put it in my phone and remember to touch on this, you know, this subject or whatever. But yeah, I, I, I hope that it's getting to some people that, especially the newbies and, and they're learning, you know, uh, things that will help you be a better turkey hunter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when did you get started in turkey hunting? Do you remember those uh, first years and, and how did that all go for you? Uh, yeah, I, I can't give you, I can't recall because it's been so long exactly, you know, dates and ages and stuff. I think I was around 14 years old. Um, our, our family owned 50 acres in South Carolina and it butted up right up to public. 
you know, when you're a kid living out in the country, we didn't have you know friends nearby because and you know you couldn't drive. So you know, when you're at home, you you found things to occupy your time. You didn't have computers and internet back then. So we were always in the woods, you know, BB guns or whatever. And then when I got old enough to uh, my, where my dad trusted me with a shotgun on my own, we'd go back and squirrel hunt and do whatever. Uh, turkey season came in one year, and I don't know how I discovered it or found out about it, but I knew it was turkey season. And I wanted a turkey hunt. So I went out behind the house, and uh, me and my brother, and we had no clue what we were doing. We just walked around with guns hoping to see a turkey. And our travels that day ended up taking us to the public land on a logging road. And we ran into a, uh, an actual turkey hunter. <laughs> um, and he asked us what we were up to. And we told him he, and he kind of gave us some, the rundown, a brief rundown on how to turkey hunt. You know, here's, huh. he actually gave us, he had some brand new calls in his, in his pack, gave us each a mouth call, brand new mouth call. I think it was a uh, hunter specialty or HS truck mouth call, uh, a split V. I ran that call for that, that version of call for many years, but, um, he told us to, yes, sit beside a tree, make some calls, listen for the bird and just sit still, keep your gun up, you know, and shoot them when they come in. And so I did that. I think the next, I think it was the very next day I sat down next to a tree, not far from where we ran into that guy. And it was right next to our property. So there were some oaks right next to the logging road it was on our property and the public land was the logging road and the pines and stuff so i sat right there in those oaks and made some calls and i think it was the first time i heard a drum but i wasn't sure what it was it was just a low rumble and then i heard footsteps in the leaves and the footsteps sounded like a person walking you know a, a two-legged turkey sounds a lot like a two-legged human walking through the leaves and so i had my gun relaxed i was waiting for this person to pop out from behind this deadfall in front of me and to my surprise, out steps a, a Jake and he's just standing there looking like, where's this hen I heard? And I'm like, oh, it's a turkey, you know, and I slowly got my gun up. And about the time I got the gun to my shoulder and closed my left eye to aim, that was enough for him. And he bolted and I shot at him as he was running, but he was smarter than me. He lowered his head as he ran away and shot right over his back. And uh, so I didn't get that turkey. A couple of days later, though, I did call him one and uh, I killed it. So. Uh, that was kind of the well start to turkey hunting there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's exciting, and that's neat. That's a neat story, just in that you met somebody on public land. It seems to be when you meet somebody on public land, and you bump into somebody. It's always the, the the horror stories or the things go wrong, and here's a guy that gives you some advice and is helpful. And well, I think uh, what I think what was helpful in that situation is I didn't know the fellow, but my dad knew him. He lived down the road from us, and okay. so he knew who we were. We didn't know who he was, and. uh it wasn't until later I told my dad, I said, I ran to this guy in the public and he asked me what he was driving. And when we came out, we saw his vehicle, an orange uh, Chevy band, uh, the old ones from back in the, mm -hmm. however long ago that was. And he's like, oh, that's so-and-so lives right down the road. Yeah, okay. he's good, good people. Uh, so, good. Well, what I want to ask you, you mentioned public land and if people watch your uh, videos, they know, you know, you hunt a lot of public, do you hunt? exclusively public land or do you hunt some private as well um private is very rare for me to hunt okay. and um i don't really try to get access to private i've i've had access to private in the past and there's a couple of reasons i i really don't pursue it um number one now i'm i'm planning or hoping to have my own property here within a couple of years but as far as getting you know permission from other people 
in the past when I've had permission to hunt private, um, there's usually a, a bunch of strings attached, you know, mm. um, just check with me before you go, you know, or so-and-so is going to be hunting this week. You'll have to wait till next week. Um, and then all of a sudden when you, you do have permission, you start hunting and then they're in there, you know, it's just all this drama. Um, the, the one thing I don't like is having to check in every time I want to go because the way my turkey season goes, it's impulsive sometimes. Like, oh, I'm not doing any good here. I didn't find any birds. I think I'll run over to this place in the morning. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't call the landowner up at 11 o'clock at night or whatever because you want to yeah. go hunting there. So yep. I've experienced so, that. So I was like, you know what? Public land just allows me the freedom to just come and go as I please. I don't have to check in with anybody or, or wait for someone else to get done hunting. Sure, there's some other, um, you know, some cons to that as well. You got to deal with other hunters, and somebody might be at the gate for you. But you know, I just enjoy that freedom, and um, I don't know. It just seems a little more rewarding, also, because uh, some of those those turkeys can be a little challenging, and and I appreciate that challenge they give me. Absolutely. Now, you hunt multiple states, correct? Yeah. Um, you typically eight to ten states this spring, somewhere okay. in that ballpark. So when did, when did that start? And is there any story that kind of comes to mind as you started hunting other states that kind of stands out to you as far as being like, hey, I'm, I can go to another state and I can find some success? I, well, I knew about it years ago when I lived in South Carolina. It's just the, I, the bag limit in South Carolina at the time was five birds. The oh, wow. season was a month long. I didn't have any need to travel. You know, mm-hmm. I also didn't have the resources to travel because <laughs> I was a young, a young person. I was barely making my car payment and stuff, you know how it is. Um, and then I got older, you know, I, just, I still didn't see a need in it. It wasn't until I moved to Minnesota. And, and I guess I should have researched this before I came up. They only allowed at the time when I moved up here, which has been over 15 years ago. Um, when I moved up here, you could only kill one bird. It was a one bird state, still a one bird state. Um, at the time you had to draw for a particular week in the season, like the seasons broke into seven mini seasons. Yeah. Some people, and it's to distribute hunting pressure. Some people get season a, which is the first week and, and, you know, all the way to season F. And, and I was like, you know what? Five days to Turkey hunt for one bird is not enough for me. And I, I was used to hunting 30 days and, and be able to, you know, shoot five birds. I was like, it's time for me to explore the neighboring states. So Wisconsin, then I started hunting South Dakota. And after I did that for the first year, it became addictive. I was like, I, I enjoyed the traveling part of it probably more than the turkey hunting, just mm-hmm. seeing new places. Now I've traveled so much, that's kind of taken a backseat to the turkey hunting. But <laughs> I still enjoy going to new places. Like if I go to the same state that I've hunted, I'll go to a new track of public. Um, but it's that it just got, became addicting to the why I wanted to hunt different regions, different terrain. South Dakota is totally different than South Carolina, you know, as far mm-hmm. as terrain and the subspecies. And so that's how I got into traveling um, different states. And I just added more and more states each year. And, and the goal was I'd look at the calendar. And, and that's why I had to start planning in November, because it's a tedious process. Look at all the states that when their season starts. Which states can I get to within eight hours because of my schedule at work? I work weekends and I'm off during the week. Mm. And so I need to leave Sunday. Excuse me. I need to leave Sunday evening. Can I be there before sunrise? (laughs) 
<laughs> and so, you know, with Nebraska, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and then I would take vacation time to hunt other states like Mississippi and Florida when it comes in early. And so I was, I'm trying to fill my calendar where there, every day that I'm off from work, I have a st- somewhere I can go hunt and I'm not mm-hmm. sitting twiddling my fingers at home. That's I've look, started looking into that mainly because last year Ohio went from two birds to one mm. and you know, I, I tagged out on opening day and then I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And I end up taking a lot of people out hunting, which is fun. Um, but I'm not holding the gun. So <laughs> I'm holding the camera and it's uh, yeah. So I could definitely see, I've started looking into West Virginia because I have some, my grandfather has some land over, over there, but the time and just being able to put that in, that's definitely the, yeah. the challenging part of that. I think. Yeah, I, and because Minnesota is a one bird state, and I, I enjoy hunting in Minnesota, but I usually wait till mid mid May to start here. Um, I usually fill my my tag, and I'm looking for others to take hunting. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily have to be the one behind the the trigger. Mm-hmm. I I get just a kick, big a kick out of video in the hunt. That feels like I'm if I get the kill on video, I feel like I just pulled the trigger. Yeah. Um, the and so I take a lot of hunters when it gets to that time of the season. The only the one drawback is that if I, someone asked me what was the negative, uh, I mean, it's totally fun being with someone else. But the one negative is sometimes I get in my mind, I want to be a killer in the turkey woods. And, you know, when you're one on one with a turkey and you're slipping through it, it's hard to do with two people. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I don't want to. The other thing is when I'm hunting with someone else, it uh, subconsciously dictates my decision making. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't realize that. Well, like if I'm turkey hunting, I'm slipping through the woods and I need to make a move on a gobbler or maybe I just need to sit tight. I don't have to answer to anyone or explain what I'm doing. I just sit there and in my own mind, I'm thinking things through and I'm just staring into space about my thinking about my next move. With a, a, a hunter with me, it could be a friend or whoever, it could be a newbie. I'm just trying to get their first bird. I'm constantly second guessing my decision because or I'm asking them, Hey, I think we should do here. What do you think? You know, I want them to be a part of the hunt, but at the same yeah. time, it is obviously affecting my decision-making or I think two people can't make this move to this location 30 yards away. And so I don't make that move. So, you know, there's some pros and cons to each, but there's no more uh, satisfying feeling when you get a, a, especially a new hunter out there and uh, capture that on video and call it a bird for them. I want to dive into like some specific hunts, maybe even related to that. Have you ever, have you been in a situation before where maybe you've taken a buddy or somebody out and, you know, maybe they made a suggestion to move or you made a suggestion to move and uh, has that ever played out in a specific situation for you? Oh gosh, there's been so many hunts. I'm I'm sure there's some where there's been some where a buddy may suggest something and I, and I don't always hunt with newbies. And I mean, there's, I hunt with some veteran turkey hunters, you know, just as you know, skilled or more skilled than I am when I'm out in the woods. So a lot of times I'll take their suggestions with more weight than my own. Yeah. Um, I can, I can't think off the top of my head, the specifics, but I do remember it seems like there was a hunt where a buddy suggested something and I was, holding back i was too um what's the word i'm looking for a little reserved in my uh i didn't want to be too uh aggressive yeah aggressive and i held back and and i think it cost us where my yeah. buddy was like yeah i think we should move forward i'm like no 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 we'll just sit tight here 
yeah. Um, but I can't think of specifics. I mean, it just seems there's, they all mixed together. Oh yeah. It's, I've had it before where, you know, you've been in a situation with a friend, you suggest to them, Hey, we maybe you ought to move or whatever. And you stand up or a turkey's right there. Or they say, let's hang tight. And a uh, turkey comes in over behind you or over your shoulder or whatever. And uh, <laughs> that can sometimes lead to some uh, messed up encounters or they come a little too close, you know, things yeah. like that. I mean, I can think of the hunt um, just recently. I posted on my channel, me and uh, my buddy Tyler from Alabama came up and hunted and the bird gobbled. And I was trying to get to a specific spot, but he gobbled and, and he sounded much closer than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of, bailed next to the tree you know, closest to us and it didn't work out for us i mean he popped up over the hill he could have shot him but um if he had been prepared but we we were just in a bad situation and i was wanted to get to one or two spots off to my right up the hill a little bit to give us some elevation or up to my left where we could see down the woods a little bit more and and that cost us the gobbler yeah. was looking over the brush looking at us and we didn't know that until I started editing the footage and you could see his head pop up over some little green bushes and yeah. he was staring at us for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he probably caught some movement and he got nervous and he dropped off the hill. Yeah. What's the, what's the closest you feel like you've ever been, like had one come close by? Have you ever experienced one like super close where you almost reach out and touch them? There's been a couple of those. I can think of one in Wisconsin that I almost didn't get years ago. and I had set up on a log row and it's just, it was so thick there, the underbrush in the woods, mm -hmm. almost like they had thinned out the timber years ago. And so it was a lot of, you know, trees on the ground and, and just, I don't know uh, what the variety of brush was, but it was really green and thick shrubbery. Mm -hmm. And I was calling to him and I just assumed he was going to break out and hit that little logging road in front of me and, and he'd be in gun range. Instead of doing that, he came straight to the call and he was like, I don't know, six or eight feet from me. Oh, wow. Gobbling his head off. And I'm like, and I'm looking with my gun down the logging road. and He's 90 degrees to my right. I got a tripod with a camera on it right there on my right side, filming down the logging road. And, and I could just see bits of him through the brush. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. And so I just turned the camcorder and pointed in that direction. And I had to come up over the tripod with my gun real slow. And I'm hoping that the thick cover was enough to keep him from seeing me. And apparently it was. And as soon as I got my gun over, he stepped into like a little small opening. I could see his head and neck looking at me. I mean, it was like eyeball to eyeball. And I shot him and uh, killed him. And, and that bird was so loud, gobbling right in my right ear. I mean, it was crazy. And you're talking about somebody just shaking to pieces yeah. right there because... That's what gets me more nervous. Anything. If he had just stepped out in front of me, yeah, I'd have the drilling and everything going, but I wouldn't have been shaking like I was when you're in a you're in tied up in a, a situation where you know nothing's gonna come, you know, good come, gonna come from it. I mean, you just know there's there's no way you're gonna pull it off, yeah. and that just makes you more nervous. Absolutely. Well, you've had um, you know with all the years that you've been hunting and experiences, you know, on TV they always make it look extremely easy, or YouTube it's easy. But we know that there's challenges. What would you say if you had to think about um, one of the hardest hunts or hardest birds you've ever been able to kill? What, what would come to mind for that one? Uh, well, I think it's it's probably the Minnesota gobbler I killed. Um, I'm trying to think what year that was. I think 2015 or 16. He ended up being the number three bird in the state. But I didn't know that at the time, you know, because he, he was just a bird goblin. 
And I got I got in there tight that morning. I didn't even know if there was going to be a bird there. I just know that the birds had roosted there in the past. I drove down from my house. I think it was a you know an hour and a half, two hour drive to get to this piece of public land. And I walked out there on that ridge in the dark, and I sat down. And right at daybreak, one gobble right on the point of that ridge. I was like, oh, there's one roosted here. And so I, I made some soft calls to him and he immediately didn't like that. And mm-hmm. here, here's my thing when I'm hunting um, anywhere where there's um, open fields or anything like that. I hate hunting open fields or I hate trying to call a bird towards a field um, because they they've especially on public land because they've dealt with pressure enough in those fields. The, the, the number one tactic, it seems up here in the Midwest is. The hunters, especially during the early seasons, A, B, C, and D that we have in Minnesota, they'll pop a blind out there and put a decoy out there in front of them in the fields. And that's where a lot of the turkeys get shot. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good strategy because during that part of the the season, there's no leaves on the trees in Minnesota. I mean, you can see forever. It's hard to run and gun these turkeys because they can see you from a long ways off. You better have some hilly terrain or something to to help you. So I think that's uh, why a lot of guys do that. But these birds get accustomed to that, and they they fear the field. Mm-hmm. They'll go to them on their own accord, but they if they hear calling, they do not want to go to calling in the field. It's much easier to call them into the woods. So the field was 30 or 40 yards behind me. I think that was enough to make you nervous to think, okay, this is a hunter. <laughs> this, is one of, this is one of those bad situations. And he didn't gobble a whole lot after I called. And when he pitched down, when he flew down from the roost, he sailed across the valley to another hillside, another ridge, and there was a bird gobbling over there a couple hundred yards away. He just flew away from me. And I was like, well, there goes that. But I sat there and listened for a little bit, and those birds were gobbling. I said, you know what? I'm going to make a move and try to get on the same ridge as them. And I'm in the hill country of Minnesota, and, and some of these hills are, are so steep that you can't stop going down. And once you commit, you're just sliding down. <laughs> yeah. And you're grabbing, you're trying to dig your heels in, you're grabbing saplings, trying to slow you down. And that's basically what I did the whole way down this hill. It was almost vertical. I just slid all the way down to the ravine, uh, 200 feet down below. Um, And then I had to ascend the other side. And so I I got to the other side. I was near the top. There was deer trails cut into the side. And those are the only way you can really walk on these hills when they're really steep like that, um, is to use those deer trails. I actually sat down to catch my breath. On that deer trail, used it as a like a park bench and hung my feet feet off. That's you know, trying to uh, vision envision that you know it's cut out of the heel of the deer trail. Yeah, and I sat there listening to them gobbling up up above me. And as I did, I noticed the one. I'm guessing it's the one that was roosted that I was set up uh, early in the morning. It was roosted. He started gobbling and working back around the rim of the the or top of the ridge there the other bird kept gobbling in the same location. And as I sat there and listened to him, he gobbled every once in a while and made his way all the way back to the ridge that I had just come from. And he sat up there gobbling. And I was like, that dirty little thing. He, he didn't trick me, flew across here, had me chase him over here. And then he walked back around to where he was roosting. I said, you know what? There's enough terrain here. I can just drop back down the ravine and come up the backside of the ridge, basically right where he was roosted on the point of that ridge. And so that's what I did. And I didn't make any more calls. And this bird must have got to wondering where this hen was. I think he was just returning where he heard me calling earlier in the morning. And he sat there and he gobbled nonstop while I was making my way. It took me a good half hour to make it down the hill and up the other side. And he gobbled every, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute. 
I got up the other backside of the ridge and there was some rock outcroppers I had to climb up and I just got to the, the where I could see over the point of the ridge there. And I'm basically standing off the point. I mean, it drops off that much where you can stand and poke your head up. And I got my gun ready and I made some soft yelps and he hammered at it. And I did some clucks and purrs and he hammered at it and I, and I raked leaves and I just sat there for a while and, and he would gobble and he would not budge. And he, it sounded like he got a little closer, but I still couldn't see him. I said, you know what? I'm going to make my way a little closer to him. So I belly crawled up on the ridge and I squirmed up to a tree in front of me. And the tree was only like 10 inches diameter, not enough to really hide me. But I was like, I got to get up here to where I can see better. And I got to that tree and I'm just peeking at around it. And I call real softly, just do some you know, soft stuff. And he hammers and he's like, he sounds like he's right in front of me, like 20 yards, but I can't see him. I'm like, where are you at? And he'd gobble. I'm like, where are you at? You're right in front of me, but I cannot see. I don't see his head moving when he gobbles. <laughs> and I'm like, it's driving me crazy. Finally, I heard him gobble off to the left. And imagine this uh, ridge comes out, triangle-shaped ridge on the top. On either, on either side of it, it's like a boat ramp. It ramps down on either side around it. And I could hear him dropping off to the left, off down one of those boat ramp shapes. And so I, I slowly crawled over there. And I heard him spit and drum and he had moved five yards. I was just judging by the sound where he was located five yards farther ahead. Then he gobbled his five more yards farther ahead. And so I knew where to be looking. And as I got to the edge, I come up, I raised up a little bit so I could see over the rim of this ridge to see down on that little, that slope of that hill, anticipating him being five more yards farther ahead, but he wasn't there. And I cut my eyes back to the right, and there's a big eyeball looking right at me. He's standing there. I mean, he was about 10 yards away or 12 yards away or so. But I remember that eyeball looked like it was right in front of me. It just was pierced right through, through me. I mean, he was just staring at me. He's like, this gobbler's like, uh-oh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and I just slowly turned the gun over to to his uh, location and that was about the time he said okay i'm out of here and he he made one step to step away from me and i shot him and uh that was one of the most thrilling hunts though just the way it worked out yeah. i went over there and, and uh got to him and he had long hooks four beards oh wow forget what he weighed but he ended up i went and registered him at the local taxidermist and uh had him you know weighed and certified and everything he ended up making the number three bird in the state of minnesota but what was interesting about that, when I was sitting up on that ridge and he was gobbling, and I, it just sounded like he was 20 yards in front of me and I could not see him. I walked back up there and took a look. There was a, a low spot in the, rib, uh, in the ridge. It was almost like a tree had fallen 100 years ago and the root ball had pulled up a big hole. Okay. There was no signs of a tree ever being there anymore. So it had been you know, a long time ago. He was sitting in that hole gobbling. Hmm. And he just stepped out of that hole and went down the hill when he got ready to move and I never saw him because there was enough elevation from that hole to the top of the ridge. And he was certainly like 20, 25 yards from me when he was gobbling. And uh, I mean, so it's a pretty cool hunt. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I think, you know, as, as we listen to this, I, I think about tactics and things like that all the time. And uh, I had a podcast with some of my buddies and we talked about things that we've learned, but you mentioned calling from a spot, then moving, and then the Turkey being where you called from, like how often do you experience that? Is that, I'm a person that I can't, I try and be patient and I know if I would just sit in a spot, maybe they'd come, but I always try and make things happen. So how do you balance, this is getting into tactics a little bit, but how do you balance knowing when to leave a spot or stay in a spot? 
Well, I can I can say, and I don't know the reason why, and maybe it's just because of experience, but it, it happened more often when I was a younger turkey hunter than it does now, where I would I would be impatient and I would move. And the next time the bird gobbled, gobbled right where I was at earlier. Yeah. And and, and I'll tell you what I learned from that and, and probably why it doesn't happen as much anymore. What happens when you move on a turkey? You're calling from this position, he's gobbling, and then you decide to go 100 yards to the right. You quit calling. You gave him the silent treatment without mm-hmm. realizing it. And so now he comes in looking for this hen. So nowadays, if I've got a bird that's not moving, before I ever make a, a, a location change or try to reposition on, I'll just give him the silent treatment for 30 or 45 minutes to sit there and let him make the next move. And yeah. it works. It's worked out a lot lately. Um, I mean, well, it's a lot, worked a lot over the years. I can just think of off the top of my head lately, several instances where i just went quiet and the bird you know couldn't take it anymore and they came right in yeah yeah that's that's good advice i've learned that and still learning it there's there's times i don't know i've been aggressive and it works out you know and uh that becomes addictive because then you're like oh man i can make it happen and you can go after but then there's so many times where bird gobbles back where you were or you bump them on the way because they were making they were closing that distance so i will i will add this i know it's kind of the tactic part of it but it, whenever you decide to go quiet on a bird, get your gun up and aim the entire time or, or be in the sim. I've gotten, because I video my hunts, I've gotten called off guard several instances lately where the bird went quiet. I gave him the silent treatment. 30 minutes later, no bird. Crow flew out the one hunt in Minnesota where a bird, a crow flew over and, and, ah, ah, and he didn't gobble to it. And I'm like, okay, this bird left the area. I'd already called this one particular bird in once before. And then he you know, slipped away. So I was like, what are the odds of him coming in again? So I laid my gun down, you know, uh, put my legs out in front of me, laid my gun down on my legs on my lap in front of me, got my camera out and started narrating what's going on. Okay, here's the latest, blah, blah, blah. As I'm talking to the camera, I hear a gobbler drum. And I'm like, oh, no. And so I just lowered my hand with my, my camera and got my gun up. And I didn't even move my legs to get my knee up because it would have made noise in the leaves. And I just held my gun up and out steps the gobbler from behind a tree in gun range. And there was a fallen big oak right there in front of him. And he hopped up on it and was looking and he drummed and he looked and I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in easy gun range, but there's a tree about an inch or two in diameter right in front of his head and neck. And so I'm just sitting there aiming at it, waiting for him to hop off the log or move his head where he can shoot. Well, he decides to start preening and he would start preening his feathers and I'm holding my gun up and it was, I don't know how long he did it. He preened for forever and my arm, my muscles were getting so weak. I couldn't hold my gun up anymore. So what I did was I just pulled my gun into my shoulder as hard as I could and let go with one hand and just, you know, I didn't move my hand down. I just let off holding it to rest that hand. And then after a minute or two, I would grab with that hand and let the other hand relax. Just I was, my arms were getting so fatigued, the gun was just starting to shake. So I had to keep alternating. He finally decided he was done preening that side of his body and he swung around to preen the other side. <laughs> but when he did, it made his head clear that tree. And so when he lifted his head back up from preening the other side, it was in view and I shot him. And I was more relieved that I could rest my arms finally than I was. <laughs> 
but uh, he fell off the log on the backside, didn't make a move. I at first I thought I might have missed him because it was quiet, and I went over there and there he was laying on his back. So. Yeah, uh, that's good. Good, good story. Good advice. Um, I think about just hard hunts, but then there's also some of those where you go out with buddies and just something funny or something crazy happens. Um, so I was going to ask you, you know, whenever you think about all these years that you've been hunting and different experiences, is there any of those that you just look back and it just makes you laugh just thinking about the hunt, like the way it went down or something that happened in the hunt? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I had plenty of those. I mean, one that just came to mind and I'm sure I'm going to miss probably some other ones. If somebody's watching this or listening to this and watches my videos often and say, Hey, Shane, can't believe you didn't mention this one. But yeah. one in particular that comes to mind, it was kind of funny. It was me and my buddy, uh, uh, Doug Updike hunting down in Florida and we went in there and got set up on this little access path or whatever it was. It wasn't really an access path. It was just a, a, a road, dirt road through the woods that the, I guess the managers of the public land used to access areas. Anyway, in Florida, it's so thick with those uh, cabbage palms and stuff. You really can't, in this area, it was, you know, prevalent. And so you really couldn't set up in the woods. You know, there was no way to see. And so we just kind of created a little cubby hole in the cabbage palms along this access trail. And we're going to do some blind calling. Well, we started calling the bird gobble. And he, they were kind of off a ways, or he was off a ways. And then a little bit later, he gobbles, and he's kind of sound like he's working around behind us. Now, imagine us, the, the access trail here. We're sitting on one side of it, but parallel with it. So we're all, we, cameras are set up. I mm -hmm. got my action cameras around me. Doug is set up with his gun aiming, let's say, south. The trail runs north-south. He's aiming south down the trail. And, I, and the bird sounds like he's going around behind us. And I said, I bet he's going to pop up on the pot pop out on this road up behind us I said, we should probably reposition and i don't know if doug was just being lazy or being silly or what or just being you know uh thoughtful <laughs> he's like man we got all these cameras already set up it's gonna be a big ordeal to, to for us to swap everything you know it's gonna take a couple minutes let's just sit tight the way we are and see what happens i said what if he comes in behind us you know walks down Oh, and then Doug's a, if no one knows who Doug is, go watch some of the videos with him in it. He is a, a nut. I mean, he is, he's just a silly guy. Right. And, and we're sitting there and he's like, oh, if he comes up behind us, he'll just run right by us, you know? And I'm like, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but this gobbler comes out on the road. I give him the gobble. I'm calling. I hadn't heard him in a while. And he gobbles and he's right behind us on the trail, like 20 yards. And I'm like, he is right behind us. I couldn't see him, but I could tell by the gobble he's right there. So I just turn my camera. I kind of get up on my knees and I turn my camera and this bird comes strutting and, and walking down the trail. And he's going to be like five feet from me. And I've got the camera on him through these cabbage palms. And that bird finally notices there's notices us. I mean, and you got to realize this bird's like five or six feet away. And I had a, an action camera. I was, I'm glad I did this. I stuck an action camera on the other side of the access trail pointing straight across it to us. So you can see, us sitting in the cabbage palms like little bits of us and the gobbler stepping in the camera in between us in in front of the camera that's cool and that gobbler got there and he noticed something wasn't right in the bushes and what did he do he took off running right by us <laughs> and as soon as he cleared us you know 20 uh, 15 yards he slowed up his pace but by then doug had already got the gun up and i was like shoot him and, and he killed him and i we had a couple comments from people watching the video they said did you guys 
shoot that after the fact and add, edit it in to look like Doug called it. I was like, nah, Doug called that. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> but uh, it was pretty humorous that, that, you know, that he, when he said that, and that's exa- exactly what the bird did. So that's awesome. Maybe, maybe Doug just knows more about turkeys than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah I just knew that bird was going to come in as soon as he sees us, he'd putt and run the other way. Oh, that's great. You mentioned, you mentioned cameras and I just got to ask you this. Uh, um, I film a lot of hunts and uh, my buddy, um, you know, we've talked a lot about this. Is there any time that you just wish that you didn't have the cameras? Cause you just mentioned the process of setting it up, putting it all out there, a lot of work. There's all these people that have this idea of, Oh, I want to film my hunts, but they don't recognize the amount of work that goes into that. Also how it can potentially cost you a Turkey or a deer or whatever the case. So talk to me a little bit about just like your camera. Um, you know, is there ever a time where you're just like, man, I wish I didn't have that. Or is it just like a passion that's kind of goes along with honey? It's, it's okay. I don't know if I can explain this properly. Yes. I would love to be able to hunt without cameras. Only if somehow it was able to capture the hunt on video, <laughs> <laughs> the freedom of not having any gear, like camera gear and stuff is, would be a dream. But, and I've done that. I went on a hunt a few years back in, in, in Wisconsin. My camera was broke. I came back from Nebraska, broke my camera. I didn't have a way of video in the hunt. I was like, you know what? I'm going to just go out and hunt. That was so enjoyable. Yeah. That was a very enjoyable hunt where I didn't have to worry about video. I just went out there and, and did my thing. After that, depression set in because I've been hunting. I've been filming hunts since I was a kid. I bought my first camcorder when I was like 14 years old, right when I started hunting. Filming me and my brothers, you know, squirrel hunt or dove hunt, deer hunt. And so it's, it's a part of me. You know, I love going back and reliving it, especially with my daughter's hunts, having those on video and I can go back. Now she's 13. I can go back and watch her when she was five and six hunting. And so it feels like there's something missing from the hunt. It's almost like even if I killed a gobble, I didn't have a successful hunt because I, you know, it's just a part of it. Um, so I'm willing to go through the struggles of toting all that uh, gear, managing batteries, charging them, dumping footage at night. Um, because, you know, in the off season, when I go back and edit it and, and relive those hunts, it's, uh, it's well worth it to me. Absolutely. I feel the exact same way, really. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's a hassle. I'd say even more so during <clears throat> deer season because of the camera arm and the weight, you know, in the spring tripod, you know, and those kind of things is, it's a little bit, especially if you're carrying decoys or things like that. But I, I feel the same way. It's like, if I don't get this on film, yeah, I'll have it in my mind. But I love I love sharing it with other people. I also love years later going back and re-watching some of those hunts and just remembering certain aspects of it. And yeah. um, so it's it's rewarding. I, I love the aspect of hunting. It's just, yeah, uh, or yeah. filming, you know, it's a good time. And, and there's there's a lot of people out there uh, on forums or face social media that you'll see sometimes saying, I don't need a camera to video my hunts. I don't need to video my hunts. I can remember every detail about it. Now they have some awesome memory apparently mm-hmm. because I thought the same. You know, there's hunts that I can remember the details that I thought I could, but then I go back and look at some videos from 2008, 2009, and I rewatched the hunt. I'm like, Oh, that happened. I, I was remembering it differently. You know, mm-hmm. you know, a little small stuff, not the major stuff, but like the small stuff. Oh, I didn't remember doing that in the video. And, it's, and so I don't think people actually remember every single detail. Right. Of and especially like the conversation. I mean, there's, that's one thing I really love about it. Like the, the hunts with my daughter when we were in Florida 
and uh, she was she was making these. She's just a little silly little girl. But um, you know, Oprah Winfrey when she gives out stuff on her show, she's like, well, <laughs> yeah. "Here's what's on a book for you and a book for you. Everybody gets a book." Yeah. And in that video, I said, "I was uh, after she killed that gobbler." I said, "Well, well Brooke got a gobbler, and so and so got a gobbler," and she's like. You get a gobbler. You get a gobbler. Everybody gets a gobbler. <laughs> and I was starting laughing my butt off. But I have that on video, so I can go back and relive that. It's such a yeah. funny moment with us turkey hunting. Yeah. We mentioned your daughter, and I was going to ask you about that. Um, whenever you think back on, like, hunts with her and some of those experiences, you know, it's pretty cool. And in fact, this year um, is my daughter is now six, and she just shot a 410 for the first time this past week. I mean, kill shot two kill shots on a gobbler from 15 yards so we're not we're, we're getting there we got from now till yeah. april but just kind of getting that i'm so excited for some of those moments when you think back on some hunts with her is there any of those that just kind of rise to the top as being uh pretty special moments the the florida hunt that i was just talking about is one of the the well, there's been several awesome hunts with her you know but that in there uh, comes to mind <laughs> it was kind of funny because we had been hunting uh, you know she's a kid they don't hunt as hard as we do, or they can't do it as much as we do. And plus they have other interests. You know, I went to Florida. My objective was turkey hunting. When she went to Florida with me, she wanted to go to, um, what's the, the theme parks there? Disney. Yeah. There's the one with the universal studios. Oh, you know, yeah. to go there. Yeah. And so, you know, and then she wanted to go fishing cause she loves fishing. And, and so we were in Florida and there was a canal right in front of us where we were staying. She's like, I want to fish. And I'm like, okay. So we were trying to manage all that. And the days were long, you know, busy days. And we're out there turkey hunting. All, we got up early that morning, had to boat across this canal, walk deep in there. You know, mid morning, she's getting tired. And it was a little cool for Florida. It was like 50 something degrees. So she's a little chilly and she gave up on the blind hunting from a blind when she was little. That was her first experience was when she was little. And then she didn't like having to stand up and look around all the time. Out the she said, can I hunt with you beside a tree? I said, yeah, that's fine. It'll be one less thing. I got a toad out there in a big old blind. So she gets in between my legs and that's how she hunts. And I can manage the gun for her and make sure she's safe with it. Mm -hmm. But I guess her being bundled up there next to me in my warm body, she pulled her little hat over her eyes and she dozed off to sleep you know and so i decided to you know keep watch and we'd already had a bird gobble way off the distance after we set up and i said i'm gonna just keep an eye out for this gobble something told me that this bird was coming in but quietly i don't know why just intuition but i was looking to my left and i couldn't see because of all the thick brush but there was one little hole i could see in that direction i was just staring right through that little hole and about 10 minutes later i don't know if I didn't at the time I thought my mind was playing tricks on me, but I could have sworn I saw something white just go through that little hole, you know, not, you know, it's not close. It's, you know, hundred yards or more away, but I just saw something flicker through it. And instead of taking chances and just waiting, I instantly just assumed it was a gobbler's white head. And I, I you on the video, see me like, get up, Brooke, get up. And I had to reach and pull her hat up over her eye, off her eyes. And I get your gun up, get your gun up. Don't move. You know, I'm yelling, I'm frantic. I'm like, get your gun up, but don't move, you know? Um, and so <laughs> she gets her gun up on her knee and, and no sooner she gets almost settled, gobbler pops out running. He'd come running from, you know, however far away he comes running in there. 
And then I realized I hadn't flicked the safety off and it's a Mossberg 410. And so mm-hmm. I had to reach up around her and, and push the safety forward for her because it was a little tough for her little fingers. And luckily we didn't get busted by the gobbler. And I'm sitting there telling her, I said, we call it the bubbles, the waddles. Because when she was little, that's what she called them. I'm going to pop those bubbles. <laughs> I taught her that's where you aim for them on the base of the neck, those little bubbles. So I'm like, shoot it in the bubbles. Right? And she's like, I can't, it won't be still. And the gobbler's just pecking the decoy the whole time. He wouldn't move, wouldn't be still. And I'm sitting there going, you know, just take your time, shoot it. And she's like, I can't, it won't sit still. And we're kind of not arguing, but, you know, back and forth. And finally, she was like, do that thing again where I'd bubble clug and like boop, boop, and get it. And she's like, do that thing again, that cluck thing to make, make him pop his head up. And I'm like, what? I couldn't hear. And she's like, do that thing again. Finally, I was like, oh, okay. And, and the gobbler finally paused a minute. And I said, brick, brick, and he stuck his head up and she shot him and went down. And you're talking about an elated uh, uh, couple of people right there after that happened. Oh, that is awesome. That's awesome. I think it's just neat. First off, I, I learned something, too. Having her, like, between your legs where you could kind of manage the gun. I was kind of debating that as far as whenever I, I take my daughter, I should have her right beside me, or I think that's probably a good way to manage the gun. But just yeah. an awesome hunt that you're on there. Yeah, and then I think it's very comfy for him because, like me, I got a, a nice little belly on me, so it's a soft backrest for him. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps him keeps, – and plus you can manage not only the gun, but you can manage their movement. Um, mm-hmm. if they're kind of, you, if you've got your legs bent up, um, off to one side, it gives them kind of cradles there, them there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if they start moving too much, you can just dump them on the head and quit moving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Shane, great stories. I love it. I, I wanted to ask you a question, kind of wrap things up here. I, and I know that you have a lot of stories and, and there's a lot of different things and I'd love to have you back on sometime to hear some others, but I want to kind of start where, where we started. I want you, to, want you to picture that you're in the, the woods, public land, walking along, and two young teenagers come up to you. <laughs> and they say, uh, you know, you kind of guess that they're rookies. They don't know what they're doing. If you just had a few moments to share with them, well, what advice would you give to them, similar to maybe the advice that that man gave to you? Like, what, what would you give to a person kind of starting out to kind of help them out? on Maybe, maybe it'll kill the first turkey. Oh man, that's a tough question because nowadays, you know, the kids have access to, you know, YouTube and everything (laughs) else where we can, they can learn. And most of them know more, uh, today than, than I knew, you know, 10 years into turkey hunting. Um, I've run into the, the, you know, young people out there hunting before. Um, usually, you know, we'll just have a, a short conversation. They're anxious to get out there hunting. Um, but, and then sometimes I'll, you know, I'll, you know, offer to, to to go with them and video it, you know, whatever. My advice, though, I mean, there's, there's so much advice you can give people. And I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of bad advice out there. The one one thing I see most often, like I just saw this post, it might have been this morning, where a guy was talking about his first year turkey hunting, any advice you guys can give me. And, and over and over again, it was the repeated. And I think these people, they passed down the same advice they, they were getting. Mm-hmm. And so they're just repeating what they heard and not based off experience. And they kept saying, sit still, be patient, don't overcall. Be still, be patient, don't overcall. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. There, I mean, you need to have patience, but you don't need to sit in one spot all day and, and call. And there's no such thing as overcalling as long as you're communicating with a turkey. You know, as long as there's a re- rhyme and reason for what you're saying. Now, if you're just sitting there, 
call yap 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 all day long, yeah, maybe you're overdoing it. But I would I would tell people learn how to operate the call properly. There's enough tutorials on YouTube. I, I mean, I see so many people, and you know, we get to see the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. I see newbie hunters and they're out there filming with the cell phone and they're running a pot call. They're not holding it properly. They're not running, you know, running the striker across it properly, or they're doing a box call and they do a big long. Yeah. 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 None of that's actually what turkeys do. Yeah. To learn to actually operate calls properly, become, you know, somewhat proficient at it, sound like a turkey. And then you can call to your heart's content, depending on the situation. Yeah. If a situation dictates that you call a lot and sound like multiple birds like there's plenty of situations i've been in where i want to sound like two or three birds jakes and hens i'm calling to a flock i want to sound like the flock then there's other times i know it's a hard-headed gobbler and i may just bubble cluck and softly up to him and not say another word so to just to to, to to say point blank don't over call and sit still and be patient that doesn't apply to every single situation you need to be adaptive you know yeah. um, based on the situation um, so I, that's what I would suggest people do is learn how to properly run the calls, be willing to adapt to the situation, move when the you know the situation dictates that and call or not call based on that as well. Mm, that's good. That's good advice. I think anytime you see like a blanket statement, I see those and I, I cringe a little bit too, because I'm like, eh, that's not always the case. And always what I always try and I guess if I was in this situation, whenever you watch YouTube or whatever, what I want to know and what you do very well is explain where you're at because a lot of this is situation and location dependent. You know, are they hunting on a private farm in Iowa with about 50 birds, you know, out in the field? Or are you hunting public land with pressure, you know? And I think trying to understand those things helps maybe dictate when you do certain things. At least that's yeah. what I'm learning as I go. Yeah. So, yeah. well, I will say this when it comes to Iowa, the public's not terribly different than their private. <laughs> the public's not. <laughs> okay. I mean, there is, they do have pressure birds on the, on the public, but um, yeah. Iowa, Iowa does a good job of managing the pressure. Uh, it's a one bird state for non-residents and you have to draw a tag. Okay. Um, you know, there's just a lot of birds there, a lot of good farm country. So, um, now, if you'd said private in Iowa versus public in Mississippi, <laughs> now you're talking about two different. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, Shane, I enjoyed it. I want to ask um, if guys are interested, you mentioned making your own calls or if guys want to check out your content, where could they uh, do that at? If you go to ShaneSimpsonHunting.com, um, you can find my videos there and you can go to the web store and order some of the calls I use and some of the calls I make. I make mouth calls, but I also sell the hooks line of calls, um, owl hooters, pot calls, mouth calls. And like I said, you can find my videos there, but you can also find my videos um, on YouTube under Shane Simpson Honey. And it's the same videos on my website. They're just linked there. So gotcha. either way. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you for carving out some time for us today. I hope that you fare well during the blizzard that's coming your way. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to hunker luck this, down. <laughs> yeah. And uh, good luck this upcoming hunting season. Looking forward to your videos. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, good luck to you this spring as well. Absolutely. Take care. Man, that was that was awesome. Loved hearing Shane's stories. Just appreciate him and his willingness to come on and uh, just kind of impart some of the wisdom that he knows and some of the stories that he's been through. Uh, I, I hope that you learned something and enjoyed that. I just have this mental picture of two teenage boys going up to some guy on public land they've never met before, or at least they didn't think they had. And this, you know, that's a little nerve wracking. Is this guy going to be rude? Is he going to give me some bad advice or tell me to get lost? This is his spot. 
And instead, this older gentleman uh, decides to share some knowledge. He shares what he knows. It helps Shane uh, be able to get his first turkey. You know, he even gives him mouth calls. Just like how much of an impact that probably had on Shane Simpson. And I'm sure he would have figured it out in time, but just something about having somebody share what they know uh, with you uh, it just helps you in your life and helps you maybe uh, shortcut the circus, shortcut the process a little bit sometimes because it's just like it's a learning curve when it comes to turkey hunting. You know, last week, uh, me, Trav, and Josh sat down, and I would say that none of us are experts. You know, we've learned a lot over the, the few years that we've been hunting. Um, and so we just wanted to share what we knew. You know, it, it might help somebody who's brand new or maybe somebody who's been hunting for a while it might help you think differently. And uh, we don't claim to be experts, but hopefully it helps you. And I think the same thing is true whenever it comes to, like, faith. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And I think whenever it comes to faith, the way I see that relating is, you know, if you're a Christian or maybe you've been a Christian for a few years, maybe you've been a Christian for, like, a really long time, um, I think the temptation sometimes is, well, I don't, I'm not a real good teacher. I don't really know what to tell a younger person or somebody who's brand new to faith or who isn't a Christian. So we just kind of keep it to ourselves. Um, we don't really share that. And I think there's something about being able to teach what we know. You might not know everything about the Bible. You might not know Greek or Hebrew or uh, you know the historical context, or maybe you didn't go to school and get a degree um, or whatever. Um, but maybe you know a few things. Maybe God has taught you some things over the years. Um, maybe you've gone through some hard times and tough experiences. Recently, um, there's a, a couple that we know. We don't know them super well, but they have a child that has uh, had a really rough rough few years and is sick and is terminally ill, basically, and, and they're coming down to the end. And um, I, I don't know what to say. Um, I don't know what I can say to uh, alleviate that pain, uh, but I... If you've listened to this podcast, you know I've, I've felt that pain. Lost my, my five-year-old daughter. Uh, she'd be 10 uh, this coming May. And so I, I just I felt it in my heart. I was like, I just want to reach out to them and just say, hey, listen, you know, this is one thing that helped us get through it. And the one thing that helped us get through it is the belief that heaven is real and this isn't the end. And I know that doesn't get rid of the pain, but it's just one of those things that, that helped us and maybe it can help you. I was like teaching, I don't know if you call that teaching or sharing, but uh, they seemed appreciative. They wrote back. And, and so, you know, it's just one of those things. God gives us some experiences, um, like being in the woods, you have these experiences, and then you share those experiences, and maybe that helps somebody else out. Um, maybe you've studied something, and you can pass that knowledge on. And, and I think that's just so important, rather than us just kind of keeping it all to ourselves. That People don't learn that way, or at least it takes them a lot longer to learn what you've learned. So I'd encourage you, maybe there's somebody uh, around you that uh, you can help, a younger person or somebody brand new to faith, maybe you can kind of take them under your wing and teach them at least what you know. <laughs> you might not be an expert, but that's okay. So just some thoughts for you to consider there. I want to say thank you so much for coming back for another episode. I got one lined up for next week, so make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. If you want to share this episode with other folks, greatly appreciate that. And until next time, remember to... Get the light.